Other transaction authority acquisitions have become popular in the Defense Department and other agencies to the tune of billions of dollars a year. OTAs have guardrails against abuse of this method of buying. The Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment earlier this month released fresh OTA guidance that seeks to dispel what it calls some of the myths. Haynes Boone procurement attorney Zach Prince joined Federal News Network's Tom Temin with analysis. Zach, let's begin with the fundamental question. OTA guidance by the armed services individually and from the undersecretary has been around for many years as it has been for a lot of the other agencies. Why do you think they issued new guidance now? Well, this is becoming an increasingly popular procurement vehicle, and there are a lot of open questions about how it is to be used. There have been different guides that have been out there. DOD had a guide, but it was growing dated. And the more that the acquisition community is using this type of purchase mechanism, the more they need concise guidance with examples, myth-busting, as DOD has done for procurement for many years, or OFPP did that, I guess, uh, 10 years ago with those uh, myth-busting one, two, and three. It's just important to have a single resource that you can turn to to understand how to set up the acquisition and how to administer it. I guess for the uninitiated, we should remind people that OTA means an acquisition that's not done under the Federal Acquisition Regulation or the Defense FAR, the DFAR. And it was initiated by NASA. Congress gave NASA that authority, I think back in, what was it, 1959 or something like that, to be able to do this for the purposes of buying prototypes because there was no commercial equivalent out there. And that's what OTAs are all about. Is that a pretty good synopsis? That's a great synopsis. Uh, it started back in 58. Well, maybe the act was called the Act of 58, but it was very, very close. Uh, and it ultimately has grown to reach other agencies. Uh, DOD now uses it a lot, usually used for research, for prototypes, and also for production. So it has a wide variety of potential uses. Right. And it could be that the new guidance came out because Congress keeps an eye on this, too. And they are probably super sensitive to, you know, the abuse that is at least potentially could happen under OTAs. I think it's a mix of concerns about potential abuse and excitement about the potential flexibility with this procurement vehicle that DOD can spur growth in the defense industrial base in ways that they really can't with traditional FAR, DFARS covered vehicles. All right. And so what is going on now in OTA? I mean, where do we see it happening? What are some of the spending levels? And is it all, it's not all DOD, but it's primarily there. It's a heck of a lot of DOD and I'm seeing it mostly in DOD world, but NASA still has OT authority. The Leave Homeland Security does. A few other agencies that might surprise you do. Energy has authority to use it in certain ways. It gets confusing because the statutory grants of authority differ slightly by agency. And so you really need to know what agency you're talking about. But in many respects, it is the Wild West. Because when you're dealing with a procurement, you know, traditional, far covered, you know what to expect. There are clauses that have to be there. And even if they're not in there, are going to be read in there as a matter of law. Then when you get into the OT world, you sort of scratch your head. Now, it's cost reimbursement. What does that mean? Are the cost principles applicable? Now, what rights does DOD have to audit? You know, what sort of payment mechanisms are they going to establish? What level of buy-in from the from industry are they going to mandate? Uh, it varies wildly. And these are not protestable. Is that correct? An OTA award? 
Usually not. There's a little piece in the guide that talks about protests and emphasizes that generally DOD would like them not to be protested. Agencies can set up their own mechanisms for agency level protests of OTs if they want them to be protestable, but usually no. And right there in the beginning of this guidance, number two uh, about this guide, the flexibility of OT agreements and their limited use across the Department of Defense has led to misunderstandings as well as several myths. A list of the common OT myths along with a discussion of facts are somewhere in the appendix they tell people to go to. What are some of the myths that have grown up that they're trying to knock down here? One myth is what actually applies to an OT. There is a belief in, within certain parts of the acquisition community that some elements of the FAR or DFARs do have to be read in or have to be included. Usually they don't. There are a few statutory exceptions, like the TikTok ban actually is required for OTs. Same with the Huawei ban and Kaspersky Lab ban. So there are times where Congress gets really uptight about partic uh, particular uh, foreign actors and puts that into all acquisitions. But generally speaking, you don't have to have any FAR clause at all in an OT. We're speaking with attorney Zach Prince. He's a partner at Haynes Boone. We're in the fourth quarter of the federal fiscal, and people are worried about funds running out, lapse of appropriation, all of these things going on. And so a lot of contractors want a quick hit to make their numbers at the end of the year, and there's no time for full and open FAR competitions at this point, realistically, between now and the end of the fiscal year. To what extent is it kosher, then, to explore with your agency, if you're a vendor, well, can we do this under an OTA? You could go that route, but they are limited in what can be done. They're really only for research, prototyping, or production. And there has to be some careful thinking by DOD on what they're authorizing and whether it falls within the statutory grant. So they don't want to just create this mechanism for avoiding full and open competition. Uh, this is only to be spurring these specific types of activities. And when you say production, it means production of that which was developed under the prototype with an OTA. You can't just go buy, you know, 67 printers because it's easy to do it with an OTA. That would be That's wrong. right. <laughs> That's an important caveat. They're follow-on OTs to uh, prototype OT agreements. And to what extent is it possible to use OTAs on existing GWAC types of vehicles that might have been established using FAR type of processes? My suspicion is there are very few circumstances where that would be appropriate. So it's direct government to that vendor. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, it, you would need to be able to really justify how this is appropriate. You can't always do single source OTs either. For production in particular, you can have a sole source OT for production if it was a competitively awarded prototype OT. But otherwise, you are supposed to be soliciting as the agency a number of different offers. And is the theory behind using an OTA for production that even though it is production, it is nevertheless not commercial because it was created as a prototype initially under an OTA, and so there's presumably no commercial market for that which is being produced? Usually there might be a commercial market, but it might be the type of circumstance where what DOD needs is slightly different or DOD wants to get industry to focus on an area that they otherwise wouldn't. And so they'll come up with a complicated mechanism where there's more industry buy-in 
know, the company has skin in the game. They'll get a benefit if this succeeds or a potentially absorb a loss in a way that a FAR contract wouldn't allow for. All right. So this guidance that just came out from the Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment is 51 pages, no pictures or charts. So it's like all reading. What should people know about this? <laughs> it is very well drafted, frankly. You know, it, it is true. It is a lot of reading and maybe lawyers will take uh, more from it than others. But it does a very good job of laying out this is what an OT is. This is how you set up a procurement. These are the entities that can get involved. And it's broken up with great case studies of types of work that's been done through OTs that have been successful and what has made them successful. So you know, for every few pages, you have to slog through some arcane definitions. You then get to understand and practice what this actually is used for. And some of these case studies go back a few years. Here's one from 1994 for the Global Hawk drone. And so certain eternal truths never fade away, do they? <laughs> they don't. Some of them are more recent. You've got one where uh, performance only ended in 2022 for robotic servicing of geosynchronous uh, satellites, which is some really interesting cutting-edge tech. Attorney Zach Prince is a partner at Haynes Boone. We'll post this interview along with a link to the OTA guidance at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both 
uh, arena. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have, we rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me 
you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's, it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do. But integrity to me is what you do, even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.